Hello, and welcome to Haunted Hometowns, your weekly true crime paranormal podcast. My name is Blake Lambert-Hack, and this season I will be covering deaths and hauntings on the high seas. The ocean, if you will. Not in a specific city like I've done in past seasons, but just generally ships, crews, sailing the open ocean. And before I get into all of that, I just want to start off talking about a couple things. Like, I've been on a horror movie and true crime docu-series kick recently. And you may think, when aren't you on that kick? But I need a break from intense and sad stuff, just like the rest of you. I just feel like I maybe need it less than the average person, but, uh... I'm currently watching the docuseries Captive Audience, A Real American Horror Story, about the kidnapping of a seven-year-old in the 70s, only for him to come back home like 10 years later. And I'm not going to spoil anything further, even though there's a lot that happens after that, but it just gets juicier. Let's leave it at that. And it's such a well-made show, too. The interviews are interesting. Um... Yeah, just watch it. It's on Hulu. And I'm excited to watch the last episode tonight after recording this. On the flip side, I've been watching horror movies, and I watched a horror movie, and I can't even remember the name of it. And It's on Netflix, but there's an app that's downloaded on your phone that tells you how long until you die. Could be years, could be days, and this teenager tries to break the curse, I guess you can call it. But there's so many plot holes. I don't understand how she broke the curse or if she did. Um, And the movie committed the biggest sin in horror movies, in my opinion. I didn't care about a single character. They could have died, I would have been fine. They could have lived, I could have been fine. Like, to me, that's the worst thing in a horror movie is... I want them to live at the end. That means I have to actually care about the character, and I didn't care about any of these people. That's kind of a lie. I did care about one character, the first character they introduced. She did everything right. Her boyfriend was drunk and ready to drive them home after a party, and she said no. She got out of the car and began to walk home. So right there, I'm like, that's a change of pace. Usually they're like, fine drive me home or the guy gets in the in the car and just pounds the gas pedal but they kind of had like a little argument she was like if you think you're gonna do this fuck off and she got out of the car and I was very proud of her especially being a teenager you know not the best decision making but on her way home like a strange man showed up behind her and she was like aware of her surroundings which Another thing that doesn't happen in every horror movie. And so she started walking faster, keeping an eye on him. But he turned out just to be 
a neighbor, so it was fine. But she got home. She locked the door. She turned lights on. She even checked behind the shower curtain. Like, I was so proud of her. Only for the mysterious paranormal being thing to show up and kill her. So it was, like, so frustrating because she did everything you could have done correct and this paranormal thing still got her. I was so sad. Like, I was rooting for her. We were all rooting for her. (sighs) But, speaking of paranormal, let's get into tonight's episode. We're going to be talking about the wreck of the SS Valencia. In January of 1906, the SS Valencia was set to travel north from San Francisco to Seattle. The ship was carrying nine officers, 56 crew members, and at least 108 passengers. Someone do that math for me. I'm not going to give it to you this time. Valencia left San Francisco at 11.20 a.m. on January 20th. And it was smooth sailing the first day. Everything was going according to plan until the weather drastically changed the morning of the 21st. Valencia wasn't too far from shore, but the fog rolled in and visibility became extremely low. You know when you're driving your car and it's like a blizzard outside or like heavy fog and you can barely see the road in front of you. Now imagine there not being a road. It would be impossible to not not run into something. Yeah, not not run into. <laughs> so like yeah, on the ocean, I would be you'd be blind. It'd be impossible to tell where you were. On top of that, a strong wind rolls in from the southeast. It was still dark out the morning of the 21st, but the crew couldn't make celestial observations because of the fog. So they relied on something called dead reckoning, which is the process of determining the position of a moving object by using a previously determined fixed position to estimate speed, distance, etc. Unfortunately, it's not very scientific and was only ever used when other options weren't available. So this is like a last resort. Because of this, Valencia missed the entrance to the strait that leads directly to Seattle. So if you don't really know where Seattle is situated on the coast, it's kind of like an inlet. Like it's not like LA or San Francisco where it's on the ocean. You kind of have to go down like It's called a strait, but you have to go down this, like, pathway from the ocean to, like, a bay or something to get to Seattle. But Valencia missed that, and instead they continued north, and about 11 miles past where they were supposed to turn, the ship ran into a reef off the shore of Vancouver Island. So we're going to pause there. We're going to get into some history of the Valencia. The SS Valencia was an iron steamer built for the company Red D-Line for service between New York City and Venezuela. 
The Red D Line had been operating a successful sailing ship service to Venezuela since 1839. However, as time ticked, they realized they needed to switch over from wooden sailing ships to iron steamers, of course. At first, they rented three German ships, but with the success of the business, they knew they needed a fleet of their own. They chose to have two ships built. The first was a steamer called Caracas, named after the place it sailed to. Not very inventive, but you know. Her maiden voyage was in July of 1881, and almost a year later, her sister ship Valencia began her maiden voyage for the Red D-Line. Valencia is a city not far from Caracas, and it's not accessible from the ocean, so I don't know where they got that name or why, you know, or where that ship sailed to. I think they both just sailed to Caracas, but they need another name, so they named it the sister ship after a nearby town. But uh, yeah, Caracas and Valencia sailed from New York City to Venezuela and back. So one would be in New York City loading up while the other was in Caracas dropping off, loading up, however they ran their operations, and then they would like switch spots. Each ship sailed once a month since the trip took approximately 26 days to complete like there and back. The ship worked traveling back and forth for 15 years without incident until May 29th. 1897 when Valencia was fired upon by the Spanish cruiser Reina Mercedes off the quote off the coast of Guantanamo Bay now at this time Spain had control over Cuba the interesting part to me is that Valencia was fired upon only a year before the Spanish-American war that ultimately gave the U.S. control over Guantanamo Bay So when Valencia was sailing by, the U.S. didn't have control yet. That's also the war where U.S. took Puerto Rico from Spain. And that's a whole mess of a war that still lingers today. And for a completely different podcast that I'm sure exists somewhere. But that's all to say that Valencia was fired upon by the Reina Mercedes. The Reina Mercedes fired two shots, neither of which hit Valencia. However, one did land only 240 feet from the stern of Valencia. They claimed, they like Spain claimed they fired because Valencia didn't have her colors raised, aka her American flag. But immediately after firing, the captain did raise the U.S. flag, preventing Reina Mercedes from firing any longer. And a Spanish official said their ship had every right to fire at Valencia because she didn't have a flag flying. However, in Valencia's defense, the Reina Mercedes didn't have a flag flying either. So, pot calling the kettle black. It's like, very housewives, if you will. We have someone spewing some shit, even though they do it all the time too. So... They both went their separate ways. Nothing really came of it. It's just petty nonsense. 
But imagine being a passenger on the Valencia, sipping a martini, sunbathing, and hearing a ship fire a cannon at you. Like, what the fuck? I'd be pissed. A huge wave, or not even a wave, a huge splash nearby the ocean, the rope, the ship probably rocked back and forth because of it. 240 feet is not that far away in ocean terms. I would be so mad. And I know, like, I can't pull up a Karen and, like, get money back or anything because it's a whole other country. But what a way to ruin a trip. That following year, 1898, she was sold to, uh, Valencia was sold to the Pacific Steam Whaling Company, who operated between San Francisco and the territory of Alaska, since Alaska didn't become a state until 1959. If you all can hear that, just so you know, I have very noisy neighbors right now, and there's literally nothing I can do about it. So I'm sorry if it's overpowering, but I'm going to try to talk over it and through it. Anyway, Alaska was owned by Russia at that point, and uh, it was owned by Russia from 1799 to 1867 when they sold it to the U.S. I still think it's funny that Canada never wanted anything to do with that space but Valencia was drafted for the Spanish-American War so she transported men in the military from the west coast to the Philippines honestly it's super complicated and I don't want to get too into it but Spain had control over the Philippines from 1521 to the Spanish-American War in 1898. So the voyage that Valencia took from California to the Philippines took so long that the Spanish-American War had ended by the time soldiers arrived in the Philippines. I mean, it took a month to go from New York to Venezuela, which is like just down the coast of the United States, I can't imagine how long it took from California across the Pacific Ocean. Like, this doesn't seem like a very fast-moving ship. However, the United States, being greedy as fuck, as always, are we surprised, decided they wanted the islands, the Philippine Islands, for themselves instead of giving them their independence, which is what they were seeking. The war officially, quote-unquote, ended in 1902 with the U.S. winning. However, fighting never ended in the Philippines until World War II when Japan invaded the Philippines. So the U.S. finally granted the Philippines independence at the end of World War II in 1946. So I hope you track that. There were like three separate wars back to back. Like in the Philippines this entire time just wanted peace. Spain had them. United States had them. Japan wanted them. United States gave them back or gave them their freedom. Messy, but the Valencia is somehow, somehow got involved in that. Um, Not for very long, but she carried some troops. 
But that's enough war talk. Valencia didn't really see war. She just saw a few troops. When the ship returned to the West Coast after the war, she didn't do too well in the public eye. Like I said, she was a slower ship, having been in service for 20 years. She was more exposed to the elements and was on the smaller side. I'm sure when she was built, she was pretty big, but by, you know, after 20 years, ships keep getting bigger and bigger. So she was pretty small by then. So Valencia became known as a second rate ship, which is so sad to say, like, she's done nothing wrong. She just got old and now she's a second rate ship. Like, I feel for her. For the crew, she was difficult to handle, especially during the winter months, because her bow was 100 feet. It was challenging for the captain to see in front of the ship from the bridge. For all you short people out there, it's like when you drive a truck or an SUV and you can't see past the hood of the car, similar to that. And because Valencia was an early steamer, there was a lot of noise that came with the waves crashing against her iron sides, making it hard to hear. These captains must have had, like, had to go through crazy training. They must have had 20-20 vision, no ear issues, had to be on their feet a long time. Like, these captains were probably fit. Had to be. Especially, like like I said, it's, it's difficult to see anywhere without fog. It's hard to hear anything. Especially when, like, there aren't crazy waves and it's calm water. It's, I'm sure it's still harder to hear. So, good on these captains. I hope they got paid a lot. In 1901, the Valencia was struck with scandal when the purser or the officer in charge of keeping the accounts, was caught charging higher ticket prices and pocketing the extra cash. Now, if you're dumb enough to pay (laughs) higher ticket prices, you deserve to lose that money. I don't know what to tell you. It's like going to a Broadway show and spending $300 when you have the option of going to the booth or going to the box office or playing the lottery or writing into Playbill. Like, there's so many other options to get cheaper tickets, but some people just, you know, some people have the money. Artists need to get paid, so you know what? Make them pay more. I mean... (laughs) The purser shouldn't have pocketed the money. It should have gone back into the ship, maybe to make her better, but, you know. When questioned, he claimed that the crew was in in on the scam, and when the crew and ship were looked into further, they discovered the ship had been carrying more people than their permit allowed. So not only were they charging higher ticket prices, but they were letting more people on. This person was making bank. And that's the thing about scamming, though. Some people get greedy. Mo- I should probably say most, if not all, scammers get greedy and don't think they're ever going to get caught. 
Whereas like if you were smart, you would do it for a certain amount of time and then book it, take your cash and run. But maybe they didn't have that foresight. Maybe they thought, you know what, in five months we'll get out of here, but they were caught in four months. Who's to say? But they were, the owners of the ships were fined $9,000. For those who have listened from the beginning, you may remember episode two of season one, where that steamer had more people on it than allowed and it tipped over. These regulations are in place for a reason. Like that ship that I talked about in season one fell on its side and hundreds of people died because there were too many people on it and the ship wasn't designed to have that. So it got top heavy. Like there are reasons why there's a limit. Same thing with rooms. Packing a you know maximum of 30 people in a room and then you pack in 50, of course something bad's going to happen. Follow directions. I don't know what else to say. So because of the scandal, the ship was sold to Pacific Coast Steamship Company because apparently the whaling company didn't have enough money to keep their shit going. The $9,000 fine didn't help. So Pacific Coast Steamship Company took over. In 1902, Valencia was returning from Alaska to Seattle when it collided with a steamer called Georgia. On a positive side, no one was injured and Valencia received a puncture, but it was above the water, so it was all good. They did say, though, that if it was below waterline, the ship could have sunk and would have sank, but she escaped with her life. We love Valencia. We love a... Lady who gets knocked down and gets back up. In October 1905, Valencia was headed south from Alaska again with a crew of 62 and three passengers and 500 tons of cargo. Somehow the ship ran aground. It wasn't very clear how, but... The ship ran aground, no one died, but they did have to ditch 75 tons of cargo to be light enough so a tugboat could, like, free her, like, pull her out to sea again. The rest of the season, though, Valencia was docked and only used as a backup vessel. You know, she's older, she's had a couple incidences, she's weathered, but she still floats. She's still, you know, as Dory says, to quote Dory, just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Now, this brings us to our 1906 tragedy when Valencia was on her way to Seattle from San Francisco, but missed her turn and got stuck on a reef off the shore of Vancouver Island. Immediately, After the steamer got stuck, a large wave came and released the ship from the reef. Which you would think is a good thing, right? We're stuck. A large wave saves us. The ocean loves us. We're good to go. Nobody's died. Solid. 
But of course, it doesn't end there. When the wave lifted the ship out of the water, like obviously crew members were looking over the deck to see how they could like get unstuck from the reef. And as they were looking over, the wave came, washed them off the reef. But as the wave did that, the crew members noticed a large gash in the hull of the ship. And this time it was under the waterline. So to save the ship from sinking, the captain knew he would have to run the ship aground. So the sh- so Valencia ran aground only 100 yards from land. So we're still kind of in this reef thing. It's shallow water, but not like ankle deep. It's definitely deeper than that. And it's wavy and the weather's bad. So, you know, you get out, you're washed into giant rocks. Like it's not safe, even though they're only a hundred yards from land. During the confusion though, crew and passengers were scared the ship was sinking So six of the seven lifeboats were lowered against the captain's orders. Now, I I just want to say there's a captain of the ship for a reason. He's not there to be ignored. He, she's not there to be ignored. When they say, don't lower the lifeboats, you don't lower the lifeboats. Especially not crew members. Like, what's not clicking? Like, especially for crew members, when passengers freak out, you have to calm them down and listen to your captain. Like, it's wild to me. None of the six lifeboats were properly filled. Three of the six immediately flipped Yes, you're correct. From the waves, tossing everyone in the ocean. The other three made it down into the water and moved away from the ship. But two of those three overturned because of the waves. And the sixth completely disappeared. Probably overturned. Twelve men made it to shore. And I'm not positive how they made it to shore. Either they swam or maybe they were in one of the lifeboats that flipped and then they swam. But it wasn't very clear how they got to shore. However, I know they uh, the ship used the Lyle cannon rope that was fired to shore. And for those who don't know what a Lyle gun or cannon is. Neither did I. It's a it's a small cannon about like knee high that a ship would fire releasing a rope that you could attach to another ship or a victim in distress. In this case, Valencia fired it to land once they ran aground. I think to make sure she didn't get swept out to sea again to help stabilize her, etc., However, the 12 men made it to shore, they did, and they stepped foot on Vancouver Island. However, three of those men were quickly swept out to sea by a wave, 
And again, you have to remember, like, those rocks that I'm sure they were climbing on to get to shore are slippery. I stood in a lake last summer. Last summer, just ankle deep, and I cut the bottom of my foot on a rock and didn't realize it until I got back in the boat because the water's cold. That's why. And then you're on bit, and then there's waves on, like, I wasn't in waves. It was summer. It was nice. But these people are standing on slippery rocks or crawling on slippery rocks with huge waves. Like, this isn't Hawaii. The ship isn't rolling up on white sandy beaches where you can see your feet in the sand. It's winter in Canada. The waves are huge. The shore is rocky. The water is freezing. I can't drill this into you hard enough. It's not pleasant. And it's also... 1906. This was not a sunny, overpopulated island. This island today has over 800,000 people living on it. But back in 1906, it's like, it's over 12,000 square miles of forests and mountains. And 800,000 people today. So it's like, desolate. I feel bad for these people, but it just doesn't seem like the best move at this point. But three of those men swept out to sea. These five or nine men climbed the cliffs. Again, it's not peachy. It's rocky and there's a cliff. These nine men climbed the cliffs and discovered a telegraph line through the trees Telegraph. That's correct. Telegraph. They followed the line through the forest until they found a lineman's cabin. While the nine men were sending a distress call from the telegraph cabin, which I'm sure it took them hours to get to that cabin, the ship's boatswain, or the most senior crew of the deck department, and a group of volunteers were tasked with taking the last lifeboat and finding a safe place to land on the island. And once they did that, the ship would send a lifeline. The group did as they were tasked. They got off safely. They rowed to a safe, more accessible area on the island. They landed their lifeboat and discovered a trail with a sign that read, quote, three miles to Cape Beale, unquote. But instead of signaling the ship that they found a safe landing spot, they chose to follow the trail and headed toward the lighthouse on Cape Beale. What is wrong with all these people not listening to the captain? It's mind boggling. Like, you don't know how long it's going to take you to get to this lighthouse. It says three miles, but again, it's through forests and hills and shit. And it's cold, and you're wet, and you don't have hiking gear. Like, I just... These people made it to the lighthouse after two and a half hours... So imagine being the captain on that ship and thinking the last lifeboat must have flipped 
because he hadn't heard any news for over two hours. Like he's like, oh, these people are going to make it there probably 30 minutes. They'll signal. We'll figure something out and how to get there. Things will be better. He's making good decision making. And yet these people don't listen. And after two hours, I would be concerned. Maybe livid. Maybe a little bit both. So at this point, two separate reports were sent into different towns. Remember, we have the telegraph cabin as well as the lighthouse. But both towns that received those reports passed their reports on to Victoria. And Victoria is the largest city on Vancouver Island. And it's the capital of British Columbia. However, they Victoria didn't get the report until 15 hours after the initial wreck. So it's been 15 hours of this ship stranded with people dying in the ocean and the captain being confused out to where everybody is. And for your map in your head, uh, Victoria is across the strait that we talked about earlier from Seattle. So to get to Victoria, you have to, you know, if you're going north up the Pacific coast, you have to take a right into that strait. And if you go south, you hit Seattle. If you stay north, you'll hit Victoria. But uh, 15 hours after Victoria received that report, they launched three rescue ships, a passenger liner called SS Queen, yes, Queen, the steamer Salver, and the tug Czar. The morning of January 24th, Queen arrived at the site over 24 hours after the wreck. 24 hours of crazy wind, waves, freezing to death. No thank you. Queen arrived but couldn't get close enough because of the weather and the reef that the Valencia was stuck in. So once they realized they couldn't rescue the ship by sea, Salver and Czar sailed to Bamfield. And Bamfield is just east of Cape Beale, which is where the lighthouse is. And that is where Bamfield is where a rescue party was put together so they could try to rescue the ship by land. The Queen stayed floating nearby Valencia while the other ships left. But shortly after the steamer City of Topeka, that's the name of the steamer, City of Topeka, she arrived from Seattle carrying doctors, nurses, medical supplies, seamen, and members of the press because we're America and we can't do anything without the press. Because city of Topeka couldn't get close enough, they chose to cruise the shoreline nearby the wreck looking for survivors. After a few hours, they found one of the life rafts carrying 18 men, but they were the only survivors 
that were that they were able to find. So that uh, life raft of 18 men was the one that went missing earlier. You know, three flipped immediately, two flipped after making it to the ocean, and then that sixth one kind of vanished. This is that sixth one. And see how I say 18 men? Yeah, the men hopped on and dropped the lifeboat into the water. Fuck the women and children, right? Later, one other life raft uh, washed ashore, but only four people survived from that boat. I don't know how many people were on it. Again, they weren't filled to capacity, but if we stick with 18, you know, 14 passed away. Eventually, the land rescue crew made their way to the cliff above the wreck. Again, this is a sharp cliff down to the water. So these people are standing at on the cliff looking down on the ship like, what do we do? They could see passengers clinging to rigging and holding on to areas that were not submerged. Unfortunately, okay, so again... It's been over 24 hours. The ship has a huge hole in the hole. It's sinking. Even though it's run aground, it's sinking, right? Because there's a huge hole in it. So it's filling with water. Part of the ship is underwater. These people are watching. Unfortunately, while the land crew was trying to figure out how to help the Valencia, Valencia's single funnel, or, you know, the smokestack, collapsed allowing the waves to crash on the deck washing people out to sea so a lot of people were you know using that steam stack or smokestack as a barrier from the elements but the relentless of the waves and the and the sinking of the ship the smokestack just collapsed um I'm sure you can picture, like, Titanic when that one collapsed and, like, fell on people. Similar thing. Um, Without any lifelines or lifeboats, there wasn't anything anyone could do when someone slipped out to sea. So, you know, these people were holding on to dear life, but, you know, a wave is stronger than your grip. A couple hours later, a large wave washed the ship off the reef and back out to sea. So now the ship is sinking in sea and not really, you know, the reef was kind of keeping it up a little bit, you know, it wasn't going to be completely submerged, but now that it's back out to sea, good luck to the remaining people on board, mainly the women and children. The remaining passengers on board either drowned were thrown against the rocks by the waves, or they clung onto the wreckage, later dying of hypothermia. There's no positive here. None. Like, I feel so bad for these people because poor decision-making by most of the people on board. The captain was doing great but the crew wasn't listening the passengers weren't listening and men being men felt like they had priority over everything 
It's sick. So we're going to take a quick break before getting into the aftermath and paranormal, of course. Maybe don't travel to Alaska in the winter. I'm not victim blaming, but just food for thought. And uh, again, listen to your captain. Listen to your captain. You listen to your pilot in an airplane, don't you? Listen to your captain. We'll be right back. We are back. So after the disaster, two separate investigations took place, one by the U.S. Marine Inspection Service and one by President Theodore Roosevelt. He wanted to determine the cause and how to prevent it in the future, which is nice, but... Why as a society do we love to be reactive instead of proactive? I throw that question to you, sit on it. The investigations arrived with the conclusion that the cause was poor navigation and poor weather. Also, lifeboat drills had not been carried out. They also determined that the rescue ships did as much as they could without putting more lives in danger. The U.S. suggested that there needed to be more safety precautions along the shore of Vancouver Island, including another lighthouse, more trails to access the shore, and a full stocked ship in a nearby city in case of emergencies. Canada, being Canada full-heartedly agreed, and immediately set those plans in motion, completing everything by 1911. So good on Canada. Canada's like, you're right. We should make this island that nobody lives on emergency-proof. 40 hours after the shipwreck, that's how long the wreck took before the ship sank. 40 hours after the ship wrecked, 136 people died on Valencia. 37 men survived. Men. Every woman and child passed away. One survivor remembered the event saying, quote, screams of women and children mingled in an awful chorus with the shrieking of the wind the dash of rain, and the roar of the breakers. As the passengers rushed on deck, they were carried again in bunches by the huge waves that seemed as high as the ship's mastheads. The ship began to break up almost at once, and the women and children were lashed into the rigging above the reach of the seas. It was a pitiful sight to see frail women wearing only night dresses with bare feet on the freezing rat lines, trying to shield their children in their arms from the icy wind and rain. Unquote. 
The group of nine men who made it to shore remembered their last sight, saying the brave faces looking at them over the broken rail of a wreck and of the echo of that great hymn sung by the women who, looking death smiling in the face, were able, in the fog and mist and flying spray, to sing nearer my God to thee. It is such a distinct visual of these women in night dresses without shoes on, being pelted by freezing water and frigid air as they wrap their children in their arms in a sinking ship, while these 37 men look on. And I have to imagine that at least some of those men were looking at their wives and children and or girlfriends. Like, heartbreaking. Frustrating. In 1933, 27 years later, the fifth lifeboat from Valencia was found floating in Barclay Sound. Barclay Sound is north of Cape Beale with the lighthouse. The lifeboat was in great condition with most of the original paint untouched. 27 years later, floating in the water by itself, paint untouched. Now, an interesting fact, Caracas Valencia's sister ship also wrecked, and I don't know too much about her wreck, but I think it's interesting that both sister ships had horrible wrecks, and that's how they were decommissioned. But um, because of the Valencia tragedy was so horrific, there have been several rumors and ghost stories surrounding the wreck, of course. My favorite comes from a local indigenous fisherman. And forgive me for the pronunciation, but I believe his name is pronounced Klainwa Tom. And his wife, who reported seeing a lifeboat with eight skeletons aboard in a nearby cave at the shore of Pachina Bay. Pachina Bay is just south of Cape Beale. You know, the one with the lighthouse. And they weren't the only fishermen to see the skeletons rowing in a lifeboat. Several fishermen in the area reported seeing this sight of eight skeletons rowing in this lifeboat. And a possible explanation is that one of the lifeboats didn't flip. Or at least one of the lifeboats that didn't flip immediately after being launched, was swept into Pachina Bay by the waves. And because of the dangerous waves outside the cave, the lifeboat and its crew stayed in the cave, dying in the cave. Because a large boulder blocks the entrance of the cave, so rescuers either didn't know the cave existed or it was too dangerous to check inside the cave. 
which I think is fascinating. And this boulder is huge. You'd have to know the cave existed or like I guess asked asked around or I don't know, but the the waves are too big to even you know, if you get close enough, the waves are gonna sweep you into the boulder and then you're also stranded. So you know, it's always put your breathing mask on first before you put someone else's on. So in ship rescues, you can't get close. You know, that's why City of Topeka didn't get close to Valencia because City of Topeka was like, if we get too close, the waves are going to take us down too. And we don't want any of that. So I just love the visual of skeletons rowing a lifeboat, though. It's very Pirates of the Caribbean caribbean you know when the two guys are they dress up in uh, drag and they're rowing and then the uh, british see them and they're like what's going on over there and then the guy loses his eye and then all of a sudden their skeletons vary that the skeletons are in drag that's what i'm trying to get at so after valencia sank The city of Topeka took the survivors and headed back toward Seattle. On their way back, they passed ships, you know, leaving Seattle, leaving Victoria. And as they, like, passed them, the city of Topeka just let them know that Valencia had sank. However, one of the ships that approached the city of Topeka was the one and only Valencia. That's right. The ship that just sank passed the city of Topeka going the opposite direction. When the crew and survivors on the city of Topeka looked closer, they discovered everyone on board the ship, on the ghost ship now, were skeletons. The ghost ship Valencia was on the same path it was earlier, right for the rocks and reef. And to make things creepier, the phantom Valencia signaled the Topeka for help before disappearing. So imagine that, right? You're the city of Topeka. You just rescued, what, 37 men? I think it, right? 37? Yeah. You just rescued 37 men. You're on your way back. You're headed south on your way to Seattle. But, like, it's it's not that far. So I'm imagining, you know, if it had a rear view mirror, you're seeing the Valencia bubble as it hits the bottom of the ocean in your rear view mirror. And when you're looking forward, the Valencia is signaling you for help as it's passing you. Ugh. What a great plot for a movie, or at least a great scene. Love that. Years after the disaster, any time a ship passed by the wreck site or people hiked the cliffs, they would see a phantom ship in peril while waves washed over its decks and ghosts held on to the rigging so they wouldn't be washed out to sea. So we have people seeing skeletons, We have people seeing ghosts. She has everything. The Valencia has everything. I 
I, of course, will post photos on social media of today's episode. But if you want some great visuals of Vancouver Island and the surrounding area, so you understand why it's called the Graveyard of the Pacific, there's a YouTube video called SS Valencia, the ghost ship that haunts the Graveyard of the Pacific by Big Old Boats. Just so you know, it's it's visually beautiful to watch and it's a, it tells the story, but um, the visuals are great. But yeah, I just can't get over... You know, again, a ghost ship is a floating ship that has no crew on it. But this is a ghost ship in a different sense. It's literally the ghost of the ship with ghosts and skeletons on board. Fascinating. Um, But yeah, that's the SS Valencia. Horrible tragedy. Some precaution, you know, some precautions were taken after the wreck as it happens most of the time where you know some tragedy happens and we try to put safety precautions in place afterwards but uh that area has seen a lot of shipwrecks because the weather's not great it's very rocky over there so i don't know maybe Again, don't go in winter. I know some people have to for their jobs, but as a passenger, go to Alaska for the summer. But uh, yeah, thanks for joining me. Y'all can follow Haunted Hometowns on social media for photos related to each episode, guest info, and upcoming news, of course. If you have a ghost story and you'd like me to read it on the podcast, or your mom has a ghost story, or your uncle has a ghost story, or your cousin has a ghost story, or your best friend has a ghost story, or your coworker has a ghost story, or your teacher has a ghost story, or your neighbor has a ghost story, or the man selling churros on the street corner has a ghost story, send them to me, and I will read them, because I want to read ghost stories on this podcast and I can't keep telling you mine you've already heard them of course I'll tell you if I have any more I'll tell you them but send them to me I'll read them on the podcast you can dm me the stories on social media or you can email me at haunted hometowns podcast at gmail.com send them my way could be anything from a mythical man slithering down your chimney in the middle of the night to getting a slap to the back of your head from your dead grandma every time you swear. It doesn't matter. If it's paranormal, send it to me. Let me know. I want to hear it. And uh, tune in next week because everyone loves a ghost story. The theme music is by Tyre. Follow him on Instagram at Queer Pop Star. The artwork is by Pepe Munoz. Follow him on Instagram at p.e.p.e.munoz, M-U-N-O-Z. I got my information from Wikipedia, YouTube, Shipwreck World, and Nightwatch Paranormal.